Welcome. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. All right, let's talk about sports myths and fairy tales today. Sports myths. Here are ones that I've picked up and I've heard from parents, I thought myself, and these are the myths that cause so much pain and discomfort. Success is steady and linear, right? It's this nice straight arrow, this nice upward projection, and we just keep moving and there aren't any detours or any pivots. And instead, what it really looks like is a squiggled mess. And we eventually get to where it is that we define success. So success is steady and linear is a sports myth. Another sports myth is you have to be perfect to win, to be successful. (laughs) You have to do it perfectly. You have to live perfectly to be successful. Another one is successful athletes don't have adversity. Or how about this one? Successful athletes don't have injuries. Or if you remember the chariots of fire, and this is still a belief that's so hardwired in our culture is successful athletes are the chosen one. Back in 2009, I had Dan Coyle come on my show and he's the author of a great, a fantastic book called The Talent Code. His book is about talent is not born, it's grown. But we so often can believe Successful athletes are the chosen one because that's one of the sports myths. Another one is, oh, other teams and schools, they don't have the problems that we have. (laughs) Yes, that's a big myth. We all have human behavior. (laughs) There's always shit shows and there's great moments as well. And I've been behind a lot of curtains of a lot of teams and a lot of schools and there are problems. That's the reality, whether it's in our family systems, our sports systems, our school systems, our business systems, there are problems. And then finally, the last sports myth that I have is if it's meant to be, there'll be no obstacles. It's the nice, easy path forward. (laughs) Oh, those sports myths cause so much pain and suffering, so much dirty pain in our lives, right? Because it's like we compare ourselves and what we're going through with those myths about sports, whether it's your own sports journey or your kid's sports journey, right? It creates a lot of havoc in our life. And then the fairy tale is, and I have been one that has bought into the sports myth, but the fairy tale is once you achieve the defined success that you're shooting for, that you're going for, whether it's, you know, winning a game or winning a playoff or going to college or winning a school state meet or winning a title or a team championships or going to the NCs, right? Then you'll live happily ever after. And I've had Olympians on the show and they've talked about this, right? It's like, oh, when you make the Olympics, then you'll live happily ever after. 
Those are the fairy tales, my friend. So think you can think about and add other sports myths that you may know or fairy tales that have been a part of the myths and the fairy tales that have created prison walls in your own life. The dangers of sports myths and fairy tales is that they create magical thinking in our brain of outcomes that aren't real, as well as an opportunity to beat yourself up thinking there's something wrong with you and not others. And we already have this plenty in social media, right? Instagram and TikTok are not a true reflection of what's really going on in people's lives. And oftentimes we find ourselves beating ourselves up and feeling bad about ourselves based on what we're seeing on the social media in our own real life, what's happening <laughs> in our boring lives. So today let's get to work on overcoming our own internal obstacles and We're going to talk about how do we believe in ourselves and overcome these obstacles that we talk about in sports and sports myths and sports fantasies, fairy tales. Now, many of you know, I'm a podcaster. I've had the show for 15 and a half years, and I'm a life and leadership coach, and I work with high achievers, high performers. And in addition to that, I've been involved in the sport of swimming for over 40 years. Whoa, over 40 years. I've been a swimmer, started swimming competitively at the age of eight, not because I wanted to be a competitive swimmer. I just love swimming. And the American Red Cross said she needs to leave the swimming class. She's passed it too many times. I became a coach. I coached age group, community college, division two. So I coached lots of levels. One area that I don't like to coach is high school. It's not my preference but I've coached many levels and I've helped kids move on to universities and get scholarships. I'm a wife of a coach, right? So if you're familiar with my story, my husband, Pete, he's coached at many different levels, division one, division two, high school. He's coached age group. He's coached club. He's coached Olympians. He's developed Olympians. So swimming is the backbone of our family, right? And I'm a parent. As I was explaining to somebody today, I have four kids, blended family. And all four of our kids swam, never with the intention that they would swim in college. And one swam in community college and three swam or are swimming in college right now. So I've been around (laughs) the pool deck a lot and in many different roles. And it's been fascinating. It's been so fascinating. So here's the thing I want to talk about is you're not alone in experiencing setbacks or disappointment. And whether it's, you know, as a parent, as a leader, you know, having your kids go through sports, your own experience with sports, our relationships, right? We all have setbacks and disappointments. And today we're going to look through the lens of sports because it's a fantastic playground to learn. And we can then practice believing in ourselves and overcoming our own myths and fairy tales that keep us small by using this metaphor of sports I'm going to be talking about. So today I'm going to talk about three main points. One is how the pursuit of goals is vulnerable, obstacles to overcome, and why self-talk is key. You ready to dive in? (laughs) And it's okay if you're thinking this is way too uncomfortable. I got you. So Pursuing goals is vulnerable. The definition, according to Brene Brown's research, and she's been on the show, she taught it to me, I think back in 2012, 
And I've over the last 10 years, I've gotten a deeper understanding about it. But the definition of vulnerability is uncertainty, emotional exposure, and risk. The one thing that I've learned is vulnerability for me feels like fear. It's a tremendously uncomfortable feeling. Even to this day, I can feel it and I don't like it and I want to run from it. (laughs) But I've learned the difference between what vulnerability feels like and fear. Because before I didn't really notice the difference. I just knew that (laughs) I wanted to get the hell out. That was my answer. And so then I started to look at, am I really in danger? So my question for you all is, who here likes uncertainty? I was the queen of certainty. I wanted certainty so bad. I was willing to stay in a job that was toxic because I wanted that certainty, right? So don't like uncertainty risk. Again, I was willing to stay in a job where I had tenure, where I knew I could get my paycheck because I don't like risk. While I may have bungee jumped back in college, I'm now a soon to be 50 year old woman. And I don't even like to zip line anymore. So my risk tolerance has gone way, way down. And then emotional exposure. (laughs) So I grew up with a mother who our cultural programming was, we never lose face, never let people see you sweat, never let people know that you may be in pain or that you are weak, right? So emotional exposure, nope. So no to uncertainty, no to risk, no to emotional exposure. I'm not a fan of vulnerability. and yet. I said to you all that pursuing goals is vulnerable. So because I know that my go-to response of fear is to run away, I'm a fleer. I also know that when I'm alone, my go-to response is to opt out or flight. Back in a different century, when I was a collegiate swimmer, I was at the division two national championships, the NCAAs. It was my junior year. And for a couple of years, I had wanted to be a national champ. And I had some coaches talk to me about it and saying, this is what you should be. I had some friends from my childhood who became national champs our freshman year. And I thought, what's so shiny about them? Like, how did that happen to them? And what perfect thing do I need to do so that I can achieve that? And I had a lot of disbelief to overcome. And there was a whole lot of process But that was the goal to be a national champ. And I knew that. And of course, I was not going to tell anybody that because that would be emotional exposure. And that was too risky to lose face because it was all uncertain. Who knew if I would become a national champ? So I didn't talk about it. So fast forward to NC2A's junior year, I'm swimming the finals and the 200 fly. And I have this long dialogue with my brain and myself in the race while I'm supposed to be focusing on swimming and not talking. And it's just negative self-talk. I'm talking to myself for like 10 minutes. You guys, the race is like two minutes. Do you know when you hear about time slowed down? Time in my brain really slowed down. And I told myself really valid and reasonable reasons of why I should be okay with not winning this year. I was like, Hey, I'm a junior. I can come back next year. I noticed that I was neck and neck with other people. I was like, well, that's okay. I can come back next year. This is an example of opting out. It's like, Oh, this is too vulnerable. Why really dig in? Why really push forward? Why not just opt out? 
and the 200 flies eight lengths of the pool. And on lap five, <laughs> all of a sudden something came over me and I was like, wait, screw that. Who knows what next year will bring besides probably a lot of anger at myself and a resentment of what could have been. And while I was wanting to opt out, I pushed off the wall with determination and flow and I won. And here's the thing that's really important. Remember how I was talking about in those first four laps, I was talking and time really slowed down and it was 10 minutes and it was this long conversation with myself and my brain was going. As soon as I made that decision of no, I'm going to allow myself, I didn't know at the time to be vulnerable and I'm going to put my head down and have determination and flow, time sped up and I hit the wall and I won the race by seven one hundredths. Apparently it was a very exciting race, but again, I swam in a different century when there weren't all these cell phones that people could just videotape. Thank goodness I didn't opt out. I remember after that race, feeling a mixture of relief and being proud of myself, being overcome with joy of like, wow, I did that. How cool. My friend, that can be what pride looks like. It doesn't have to be puffing up. It doesn't have to be arrogance. It's that going back to yourself and going, wow, how cool. It's one of the, my favorite experiences and feelings to be proud of myself in that manner. So pursuing our goals is vulnerable. There's uncertainty, there's emotional exposure, and there's risk. But when we get on the other side of that, it's truly an amazing feeling. I don't become a better person. Nothing in my life changed. There was no fairy tale, right? I didn't live happily ever after. But how cool was that to be on that side? I wanted to opt out and I didn't. So I'm going to give you three examples of not being vulnerable. The first example is the Stanford Duck Syndrome. And I learned about this years ago from a client of mine who went to Stanford and she said this, she said, Corinne, do you know about the Stanford duck syndrome? (laughs) I had no idea. And she said, you know, ducks, they're smooth and serene above water, but the Stanford students are ferociously paddling underwater, hustling for their worth, worried that they're going to get seen and be uncovered. And one of the things that they go about doing is, oh, school is easy. I don't study. However, behind the scenes, it's a furious amount of studying and there's a ton of inner turmoil. Or Princeton has the effortless perfection, right? Which is the pressure to do everything well, academics, extracurriculars, and social life without any setbacks. (laughs) That goes back to like my... A lingerie commercial that I can bring home the bacon and fry it up in the pan and you're a woman and you can be sexy and you can be a great mom. Like we're going to make mistakes. We can't be perfect, right? Perfection is armor and it doesn't allow us to be vulnerable. And then the other example is Instagram. I'm going to talk about Instagram. I'm sure there's other media and I know there's TikTok, but I'm really not on it. But there's that idea of the image versus the reality, right? And look at your life and look at your feed. 
do you know that all of those smiles is what's really going on, right? Whether they're friends, postings, influencers, people you admire, is there a gap between the image versus reality? So those are three examples of not being vulnerable. Now, I didn't realize it back when I was an undergrad after I won, but being willing to be vulnerable and focus on what I could control, only myself and my brain in all that uncertainty of the race, along with the potential of losing face, is when I obtained a goal that I had deeply desired and two years before didn't think was possible, right? I didn't realize that what I was doing was I was being vulnerable. Now, here's why it's so important is that vulnerability is the pathway to what you want. It's academic success. It's being connected and it's belonging in relationships and career success. We must be willing to be vulnerable. And that takes courage, my friend, which is something each of us have. One of the things I used like to use vulnerability as a metaphor is the Interstate five for us in California. So I live in Northern California near the state capital to go down to LA is about a five or six hour drive and it's through farmlands. It's a very boring drive and there's a lot of cow manure because there's a lot of dairy farms and cattle ranches. So it's not a very pleasant smell and it's not beautiful. If I were to take the coast highway one, which I've never driven down and I always say I want to. It would be glorious because it's a little scary about the cliff, but it would be beautiful to see the ocean and the water. It would take much, much longer. So I think of vulnerability as it's I-5. It gets you to where you want to go and it's uncomfortable. So now that we've gotten clear about vulnerability, next, I'm going to talk about the obstacles on our path to believing in ourselves. Obstacles are part of the process and we can overcome them and not be stopped by them. Remember one of the sportsmiths was successful athletes don't have adversity and successful athletes don't have injuries. If it's meant to be, there are no obstacles. This is not true. We all have obstacles and it's about overcoming them. So going back to the sport of swimming, one of the things is that when you do get behind the, the green curtain and behind the Instagram posts or the stories, the surface stories of the gold medal wins or whatever of the Olympics, when you start to hear and really learn about people's stories, you realize that swimmers get hurt, swimmers get sick, right? And we can interplace that with athletes get hurt, athletes get sick. And One of the big sports myths are that bad things don't happen to those who are good. Well, Kyle Calmer, who's an Aussie, he won the 100 meter freestyle in Rio in 2016, Olympic champion, which is a big deal. And in Australia, swimming is a really, really big deal. And from that point, he wound up having three heart surgeries and qualified for the Olympic team for 2021 in Tokyo. And he was racing our American Caleb Dressel, who's looking really, really good. And if he had probably a bit longer, he might have beat Caleb Dressel. He didn't. Dressel went on to win the gold. Calmers got silver. And his time was even better than 2016, right? He overcame so many obstacles, so many beliefs that we don't think is possible. Because you're not supposed to have heart surgery and then become an Olympian. 
And in my family, we've had this mindset because we know that there are obstacles, because we know that it's not a matter of if injuries occur, it's a matter of when and what one does about it. So when one of my daughters was in high school, she injured her back and we were trying to figure out, you know, what caused it, what were going to be her limitations and what were the risks. And here's the thing, like she was, I think 15 at the time, but her big life goal was to have four kids. Like that was something that she really, really, really wanted, which is mind blowing. Cause at 15, I wanted no children, but she really wanted to have four kids. And she was really afraid that this injury meant she wasn't going to be able to have kids. So, you know, as we were working with our physical therapist, we brought that forward and would swimming eliminate this option for her. And, and we discussed it and realized that was not going to be an outcome and realized, and he believed that she could strengthen her, her back and her glutes to allow herself to swim and also preserve her body so that she could have the babies that she wanted to. And at some point later in her life, here's the thing though, is it meant taking time away from the pool to rehab and drive up the 45 minutes to Folsom physical therapy to go see Michael Moore and get this rehab done. And we had decided that, you know, with his advisement that it meant time out of the water for a period of time to get stronger. And then the return back to water was not, oh, she just jumped back in and started doing flip turns again. There was a progression. And then we had to have the hard conversation about a few months later, going to junior nationals and skipping it, skipping the short term goals for a long-term goal so that she can have a healthy back and then achieve goals that she wanted in swimming. And that actually worked for her, right? She got faster after she, you know, after she healed and got healthier and making sure that her body was able to take care of herself as well as the future of four babies. Now, there was a lot of vulnerability. There was risk. There was constant, you know, checking in, making sure it's not that she's fixed in the fairy tale. She doesn't have to worry about her back. There's still ongoing maintenance that she needs to do to keep it strong, right? But here's the thing. It's about when we have these obstacles, whether it's an injury, it could be other obstacles. Maybe you lose your coach. Maybe you need to figure out how to increase your income. It's about being resourceful and focusing on what you can do instead of letting the obstacle determine an ending you don't want while also managing risk. And now for athletes, right? Practices are designed with obstacles, physically challenging sets that we do to build endurance and strength in swimming. We do stuff to increase our capacity of lactic tolerance. There's also the mental challenges that we do to develop mindset, right? Like who wants to get up at, I remember in high school, I'd get up at four in the morning to drive 25 minutes to go to morning practice. That was me developing a mental, you know, mindset that was much more capable, right? How we get better is by overcoming the challenges not by not having challenges. That's a lot of knots. How we get better is by overcoming challenges. We don't get better by not having challenges. We don't need to go out and create extra ones for the sake of it, but we need to work on overcoming them. Now, here's the one area that we don't practice right now in sports. There's some talk about it, but we're not really practicing it. And it's the area of understanding our emotional intelligence. I realized that emotional intelligence and mental health has had more of a spotlight since COVID 
and there's more that we can learn and cultivate and develop within our emotions. So we can understand our emotions and create a language for them. And if you are new here, this is going to be new for you. If you've been around for a while, I've talked about this emotion a long time because this is a master emotion and it's so powerful. And thank goodness for the work of Brene Brown, because it's really helped me see things more clearly. And I'm talking about shame is because shame is a huge obstacle in athletics, as well as academics, as well as corporate America, as well as friend groups, right? Shame is a huge obstacle. Now let's talk about this. Shame is the master emotion. Shame is the voice of, I'm not good enough. I'm not fast enough. I'm not smart enough. It's also the voice of, don't get too full of myself. Don't be too proud. I might be too big for my britches. Shame is not enough or being too much. And here's the problem, or I guess the obstacle to overcome. (laughs) Shame is highly toxic and it creates toxic cultures as it's highly contagious. Shame will go down one teammate's pant leg across the pool up your leg and around your neck as a noose. So remembering this and understanding about shame and feeling the emotion and understanding it. In swimming, one of the things that we do is when we get to like the senior level group and a club team is we start to learn about lactic acid and how our bodies, what happens after a hard set or a race. And we learn how to increase our capacity for it as well as how to flush it out of our system. Now, remember the Stanford Duck Syndrome or Princeton's effortless perfection, right? That's armoring up. It's pretending that it's not happening, right? But when we do this training, what we're doing is we're acknowledging it. We're saying, hey, this is what's going on. That's why it looks like this piano is falling down on your back when you're swimming because you have this lactic acid that's in you. So by understanding our emotions and going, oh, these are the stories that I'm telling myself. This is what I'm feeling. Instead of hiding away from our shame with the Stanford Duck Syndrome or Princeton's effortless perfection, we're able to feel the shame as well as dial up the antidotes to shame, which I'm going to talk about next. So as I said, shame is the master emotion and it's a big obstacle in our believing in ourselves. And the goal is to overcome our obstacles and remember that we can. And then now I'm going to talk to you about the antidotes to shame so that you can have the self-talk that you need, which is key. Are you ready to find out what the antidote to shame is? It's empathy and compassion. They're the antidotes to shame. Again, this is according to Brene Brown's research. And empathy is about being able to recognize the emotion. It's having the perspective and sharing it with somebody who's going to stay out of judgment, right? It can be coaches, And it can be not be some coaches. It can be parents. If it's in sports, oftentimes parents are in their own vulnerability shit show. So they may not have the capacity not to have judgment. It can be friends. It can be teammates. It can be a therapist, right? It can be a life coach. So knowing who you can share it with and help unpack it. 
Here's the thing. We all have to practice to learn how to show up with empathy and be comfortable to be present to someone's pain. And that when we can show up and be present with somebody's pain, that is one of the antidotes to shame because we start to normalize it. We realize we're not the only one. We're able to check in and say, Hey, what perspective, right? Compassion is the understanding that we're not the only ones that struggle and that indeed this is a human experience. So I want to share a story years ago. I had a swimmer, let's call her Mary and that's not her real name, but we'll just, we'll call her Mary. And I was talking to her mom one day and she quit swimming and I asked her mom, what was, you know, why, why she made that decision. And the daughter said, I won't be the best. Remember the sports myths and fairy tales? Here's the thing. What does that mean? She was 13, right? When she didn't have empathy, she didn't have perspective. She wasn't recognizing the emotions. Her go-to reaction was to opt out. When I think about like being the best, when she was 13 at the time, Katie Ledecky was, I mean, she's still this great swimmer, but Katie Ledecky was the best female swimmer in the world. Like I wouldn't want to go up against Katie Ledecky. Like if that was what I needed to do to be the best. So that's what empathy is. It's having perspective. What does the best mean? Is it you're not going to be the best or you may not believe that you can attain X, right? Recently, I was at NC's in Atlanta and Kate Douglas, who swims from Virginia, she surpassed so many people's limiting beliefs because she won the 50 free, the 100 fly, and the 200 breast. For those of you that are swimmers and understand this language that I'm talking about, that's mind blowing because they were three different strokes, different distances, and she broke American records. Like, holy moly, right? So what is the best? Is it Katie Ledecky with all the gold medals? Is it Kate Douglas with these, these variable events, right? But the point is, is that empathy is about having perspective. And for you is perspective is what does success look like for you? And then guess what's coming? Vulnerability. Cause you're like, uh Oh, what's the right answer? <laughs> There's no right answer. You know, success can be so many things, right? What is success for you and paying attention to that and defining that? It could be going to so many practices. It could be making finals and a meet. It can be going to leagues, going to sections, going to the state meet, going to trials and finals meet, right? Success can be setting yourself up for success and arriving 15 minutes before your practice. So you have time to talk with your friends, get your sunblock on or get in the pool on time with the focus brain, right? Success can be hitting your goal times for practice, or, you know, it could be completing this scary set that you never thought was possible. You get to define it. It can be winning or it can be other stuff. And I've talked about this a lot on the show. And then compassion is realizing that you're not the only one who's struggling on the inside while looking like a serene duck on the outside. Instead, compassion is asking yourself what went well, what can be improved instead of beating yourself up and catastrophizing your race, because that's just judgment. There's no empathy in there. That's just going to be a strain trigger and then wanting to quit. Right. And I want you to remember 
that we have the opportunity to continue to learn. And when we're in a place of shame, it's an opportunity that we often don't access because we want to typically hide away. We're so busy into protecting ourselves, we're not willing to look at it. So it's important that we have, when we have shame, and we then dial up our empathy and compassion. Because from this place, then we can actually work on talking to ourselves the way we would talk to our best friend when they're in struggle. Maybe it's talking to yourself the way you would talk to your child. Maybe it's talking to yourself. Think about who do you talk to that's genuine, that's empathetic and supportive. And as well as having perspective of what's true or what, what you may see, would you be harsh and judge them or would you be supportive? Some examples could be, I know it's hard right now. It could be, I see you are disappointed. I'm here with you. It could also be, this is one I'm really working on you guys. I'm here to listen, right? My go-to is let me fix, (laughs) especially as a friend, right? Or I'm here to sit with you. And another one, this is a great question to ask that I've had a lot of resistance to early on is because it doesn't have great answers when you first ask it, right? Is what does support look like? So while it is a great question, (laughs) you may need to circle back or you may need to give them a few options just to get them started to come up with a list. So in order to be able to have self-talk where you're talking to yourself like your own best friend, we need to be able to have empathy for ourselves as well as have people in our lives that can provide empathy like I just described. And when we're rooted in empathy and compassion, it's a lot easier to learn and grow and enjoy and achieve your goals. It's also easier to receive feedback, which will enhance your learning. So my friends, be a learner, be curious, talk to yourself the way you talk to your best friend. Know we are all flawed and imperfect and we can continue to learn and grow. And think about a time in your life when you wanted to quit, not do something and you did it anyway. And you were resilient. You continued bravely facing the uncertainty. And when you leaned into that vulnerability and courage and achieved the outcome you desired, think about how good it felt, how proud you were of yourself, how you had your own back and kept going, even though you may not have wanted it because it was vulnerable. It's worth it. I'm smiling big for you. Hey, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, you'll love my weekly emails. I know you're thinking, Karen, really? Do I want another email in my overflowing inbox? Yes, you do. Yippee, skippy, you do. These are short. They're sweet. On Fridays, I send out the Friday podcast. It's a great reminder that there's a new show and it comes straight into your inbox of the latest episode. Awesome. You click on it, you go straight because we all need reminders. We have busy full lives. And then on Sundays, I have my Sunday love column. 
And these are emails I write from the heart. They're filled with love. We need more love. We all do, myself included. These are short emails where you get a quick takeaway so you can incorporate this into your life because people often want to know what to do and how to do it. And maybe sometimes it's a story that you get, or there's like one time I wrote about the 10 ways to practice gratitude. And that became such a great tool when one of the readers was struggling in the middle of the night, because it can be a scary place in our brains in the middle of the night. And she remembered the email that I sent about 10 ways to practice gratitude. And she was able to practice gratitude and fall back asleep. And that was an awesome lesson for her to incorporate into her life. Go to the show notes and there's a link in the show notes where you can sign up and get these emails in your box. Never been so wide